if you take the long, long view, which unfortunately means that you and I will have passed from this scene, um, when some in the vanishing future uh, state of grace is reached, that that there is reason for hope. Um, so, you know, I've got two kids. I look at them and I can only, I can only conclude that anyway. Hi, everyone. Welcome to this week's episode of Tourist Information. My guest this week is author Alexander Wolf, who spent 36 years on staff at Sports Illustrated. He has written or edited nine books, including the New York Times bestseller Raw Recruits and Big Game, Small World, which was named a New York Times notable book. He is also a former Ferris professor of journalism at Princeton. And his new book is called End Papers, a family story of books, war, escape, and home about his father and grandfather. His grandfather, Kurt Wolf, was dubbed by the New York Times as perhaps the 20th century's most discriminating publisher. I will read you a quick review from the Boston Globe, which says, Ultimately, the real energy of End Papers comes not from Wolf's impressive reconstruction of his father and grandfather's biographies, but from the way he adds himself to the narrative, bringing us back to the present. End Papers is more than a book of history, it's transnational, intergenerational reckoning. It's a superb book. Alexander is a really smart guy, and this is a really brave exploration of a very complicated, complex family having to navigate some of the 20th century's most, uh, how shall we put it, eventful <laughs> moments. Um, so yeah, I hope you enjoy this week's guest, Alexander Wolf on Tourist Information. How are you doing? Just fine. Thank you so much. We have, um, I'm a number of miles north of you. We have mud season fully fledged here in Vermont. So um, yes, just, it's a, it's a time of year that I associate with 35 years of following the NCAA basketball tournament. So there's this weird energy plus looking ahead to April and longer days and sunshine, warmer temps, all that. So it's a, it's, it's Proustian weather. <laughs> That's so great. What a, what a amazingly strange back background you have. Your biography is so unusual for a sports illustrated writer. I found, I'm, I'm sure I'm not the first to point that out. Well, I suppose so. I mean, I, I, I guess if there's, you know, the equal opposite reaction theory that having been raised by a first generation immigrant, I did everything I could to fit in that mm. sports makes a lot of sense. Um, so it really isn't all that unusual in that I, I grew up just a sports loving kid and, and loved words and language and found sports writing to be kind of a way to merge the two. So I suppose if you go back a generation or two in my family, that does get a little bit atypical. But um, I, I, working on this latest project has writ large for me just how much the, you know, the, inherit, the family inheritance, the family narrative really does determine the twists and the turns. And I, I grew up with a dad who really wanted to assimilate um, through the 50s, late 40s and the 50s. And then I I saw him as being still a little bit 
removed from 50s America. So I was trying in my own way, too. So by the time that second generation me gets through, I'm, I'm whole hog into being into sports and hot dogs and apple pie. Hmm. Well, I found, I found as I was seeing kind of how you seem to organize the book with the three narratives and then having them sort of bang against each other, it, it almost made me think like you spent the afternoon at the Prado, looked at some Hieronymus Bosch triptychs, and then went home and watched The Godfather Part Two and said, I'll do it with three in terms of toggling these narratives and and just the way they inform each other. I mean, I think there was a, a review I read that I found particularly interesting. Uh, Ultimately, the real energy of end papers comes not from Wolf's impressive reconstruction of his father's and grandfather's biographies, but from the way he adds himself to the narrative, bringing us back to the present. End papers is more than a book of history. It's transnational, intergenerational reckoning. And I just wondered, <laughs> how does one go about, like, what's the genesis of, of that kind of undertaking? Because it seems so daunting in principle, and yet you pull it off so seamlessly. Well, I should say that um, if you had seen the earlier draft, you wouldn't use the word seamlessly. <laughs> there, there was, um, I got real pushback from my editors when there was e even more movement, um, time-switching movement between uh, centuries during the 20th century, and um, I, it was explained to me just what a, a, a gift to the reader it is to stick to chronology. I just assumed that the history of the 20th century was so familiar to everybody that I could willy-nilly jump from, you know, the Ukraine right after Operation Barbabosa to um, to my grandfather getting off the boat to to my dad um you know becoming this man in the gray flannel suit during the 50s and um it was explained to me okay use let chronology be your friends and try to use the president more as a framing device you know there are a couple of chapters that i am indeed narrating and it's sort of my life and the way i'm interacting with the past but um there was more of that in earlier drafts and I'm just grateful that I was disabused of the idea that that made sense. And um, I think the other thing I, I was able to play around, around with that was my great friend were these letters and diaries and they just sort of sit there and they're historical documents, but they're also human voices. So um, my dad was kind of a workmanlike letter writer, but he wrote home to his mother in Munich from the front reliably throughout the war and she saved every letter and then his father was a great letter writer and was a man of letters you know so they were going to be um be terrific and then there's almost this greek chorus of women in my family um my step-grandmother helen wolf kurt's second wife my natural grandmother kurt's first wife and my aunt maria and the three of them um kind of comment on the lives of these these men this patrilineal spine that is is at the center of the book, but you, you get these female voices. And, and all those years sports writing, I always found, you know, inevitably, I mean, you write about boxing, so you know this, so many of the people we write about are men, yet so many of the insights uh, that you're going to get are going to be from, from women around those men. And uh, they're the ones who kept the scrapbooks and 
and dress the, the skin knees when they were little and kind of understand the full arc of a story, I think, in a, in a very visceral and emotional way. And, and I was so lucky to have all these documents and be able to fold them in. So it became an exercise in, okay, wh- how do you leave well enough alone? How do you just let this this letter or this exchange sit and maybe have a sentence or two of commentary, but, but no more than that? Hmm. And you spent a year in Berlin researching this book. Is that right? That's right. Yeah. So the the process of actually assembling everything for it began, you know, decades earlier. And then I suppose really took root in 96. So I would take a cruise down the Danube with my father. He's at that point got cancer. And he's going to live another decade or so. But um, we both knew that it was, it was a time to, to take some stock. And I don't mention this in the book, but there was a point, you know, the sixth or seventh day of the cruise where we would repair to our cabin and talk after lunch every day. And he saw me furiously taking notes as he told of his childhood and his military service for the Third Reich. And I remember this. Um, he turned to me and said, maybe you'll write about this someday. And I took great solace in that as I really brought into it upon moving to Berlin. And, you know, I know the, the broad outlines of the story when we made the move, which would have been summer of 2017. Uh, but there was so much that I found by burrowing into the letters and going into archives and talking to cousins who still live in Germany. Um, and in those words, my dad just, they they felt like a permission slip of sorts, which as much as we like to say, we outgrow that need for the approval of our parents, there is always kind of that residual tug. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, I, I did feel that, you know, maybe he, he felt that I'd come far enough as a, as a teller of stories that he could trust me with a story, but, um, it, it's a, it's a tough story to tell and he seemed not to shrink from the idea that I might someday tell it. And that meant a lot. Hmm. Well, why don't we start with your grandfather, Kurt Wolf, who the New York Times book review referred to as perhaps the 20th century's most discriminating publisher because the who's who uh, of who he's um, assisting, facilitating, reaching the world is is just so breathtaking. I mean, I guess Kafka would probably be the most famous, but I mean... Uh, Dr. Shivago with Pasternak. I mean, it, it, it's just a really amazing thing. I mean, I have such a pedestrian grandfather by comparison, but it's my own family mystery. But having your relative connect to such luminaries, I, I just, yeah, could we start with your discovery of Kurt Wolf and sort of how this project um, helped maybe reshape that or, or illuminate it? Yeah, that, that um, I, I like the invitation there to for me to talk about kind of the two views before and after working on the project. I mean, that sure. growing up, I, I did hear lots of stories about about this larger-than-life grandfather. I met him twice while I was alive. And in the book, there's actually a photo of the two of us together. Um, and I just remember mostly my mother commenting on what a huge character he was. He he was a great pusher of pleasure onto people and publishing was a perfect profession for him because he had enthusiasm for things and, and this was a way to kind of monetize his own enthusiasm. 
but he loved um he loved wine, he loved food, he loved music, he loved women, and uh, not necessarily in that order. And and I, I always knew that my dad um, kind of counter-programmed to his father. That my father, probably because, you know, the first, I don't know, of his first 30 years of life, most of them were spent under the Third Reich, and he desperately tried through the 40s and the 50s once he became an immigrant to the U.S. to to create some sense of normalcy and didn't need to be larger than life. Life was good enough, just ordinary life. Um, but then I, in, in actually burrowing into more of the specifics, reading some of Court's World War I diaries that are in a literary archive in Germany near Stuttgart, um, how his attitude toward that war changed. You know, he was caught up in enthusiasm for it, as were virtually all Germans in 1914 and then very quickly becomes disillusioned and becomes a very uh, vociferous pacifist. And a lot of his publishing activities um, when the war ends are uh, anti-monarchist, anti-militarist novels like Heinrich Mann's novel, Der Untertan, uh, The Loyal Subject. So you, you can see he's a, a man who engages in the world. He's kind of, um, he changes, he he loves to surround himself with people who are maybe smarter, better read um, than he is and just loves to sponge up what they have to say. Um, a, a man who loved music and art too. Like, don't forget art. A, a lot of his publishing activities had to do with fine arts. Um, but to me, the most amazing thing about his career is so uh, it's great to be a publisher before World War One in Germany. More books were published in that country than in any other country in, I think, 1907 or so, right around the time he meets Kafka for the first time. And um, there's a real appetite for expressionist voices, experimental voices, even though the Kaiser is still ruling the country. And But then World War One comes, and it changes everything. And it's not just the war, it's the aftermath. It's Versailles. And the Weimar inflation makes any kind of uh, business activity, let alone publishing, where there are paper shortages and people don't have disposable income to buy books. It's just a disaster through the 20s. And by the end of the 20s, he's depressed. He's folded his businesses. And then 33, Hitler comes to power. And he, as of 1930, is divorced my grandmother and my uh, dad and Aunt are living with their mom and, and her new husband, which is what accounts for the family splitting apart. And Court and his second wife, Helen, have to go on the lam after 33, after Hitler comes into power. So the family is, fate of the family is pretty much sealed there that it will be divided. Um, so he makes his way between 33 and 45 to these very various exile outposts in southern France and Italy. And then finally gets, through the help of Varian Fry, this great humanitarian, who helped lots of um, artists and writers and so forth get out of Vichy, France, makes his way through Lisbon to New York. And, and to me, the most amazing twist in his life is he's not fluent in English. And within a year after getting off the boat in New York, he is cobbling together enough money to start a publishing house that will publish in English called Pantheon Books, which still, of course, exists today, and uh, signs this deal with investors that says that he and his wife won't take a salary until the house breaks into the black, so he's pawning artwork he'd smuggled out um, 
when he goes back to, to Europe, um, he buys it up cheap, comes back to New York, sells it to art dealers just so the family can eat. And um, yet somehow in those first 15 years with Pantheon, um, or 17 or 18 years, he, he actually comes up with a couple of bestsellers, including Dr. Zhivago, including Gift from the Sea and Moro Lindbergh. And, um, and in the great irony, it's the success of the house that causes this boardroom battle to flare up where, so wait, there's real money in this publishing. We, we shouldn't be publishing uh, obscure literary work in translation from European authors. We should be you know, doing the next blockbuster Russian novel uh, as if you can do a Dr. Zhivago every publishing season, you know. So he loses this, this boardroom battle and um, in defeat re-emigrates. He basically goes back to Europe um, he continues to publish in a nice little twist at the very end of his career, but I think he was soured on the United States in, in a revocable way. Um, and to me, that was the great poignant piece of his story that I never knew. I didn't know um, that from the heights and the glory of discovering Kafka and publishing him, uh, and then all these twists and turns because history is buffeting him as it buffeted my dad, um, he seems to make it in post-war America, but then poof, uh, in the most American possible conflict, you know, it's capitalism <laughs> rears its ugly head, he he retreats to Europe. Now, the, the coda, which is so lovely, is that William Yovanovitch, Harcourt Brace Yovanovitch's CEO, comes hat in hand to Switzerland, where he's in his second exile, and pleads with him and Helen to to have an imprint within HBJ, Helen and Court Wolf Books, and they agree to it, and they're given enormous freedom within Harcourt Brace to publish as they wished, which was perhaps the best revenge, but it, it came at great personal cost, and he had heart trouble, and then in 63, he's hit by a truck and dies suddenly. So um, that is his life. <laughs> it's a life, indeed. Um, but I just didn't know every little twist and turn it at it until we, we made the move to Berlin. Mm. And so then you have this next chapter with his quiet son, Nico, who is left behind in Germany. And this hit home for me. I mean, you, you and I both come from Jewish relatives who converted to Christianity for their own protection. Uh, mine in Hungary, but I, I know I had a great grandfather who was a translator who was always hiding his Jewish heritage. Um, so I found this particularly fascinating to delve into with your work. But I mean, could, could you just move on to Nico and describing him? And I mean, I didn't think it could get more rich and layered from your grandfather, but then of course it does. So my dad, um, you know, maybe it skips a generation. You know, I'm I'm more like my grandfather in being kind of into to letters, where my dad was a, a tinker, a technical guy. Um, loved to work on theater sets. Um, you know, played the saxophone and the violin a little bit, but uh, much more kind of practical, technical. Not at all the, the the man of the salon like his father. So the divorce happens in '30. My dad stays in Munich with his mother, who is, um, was born Elizabeth Merck. So she's from a very prosperous pharmaceutical and chemical family. But the Merck that we know in the States, that's based in Rawway, New Jersey, is, can originally be traced back to this family. 
uh, outside Darmstadt. And so my dad's growing up in Munich and, you know, through the early 30s and then even after Hitler comes to power, life is pretty good for him because his mom is, is not at all Jewish. The family is, is prosperous and come to find out in a way I did not know uh, would cozy up to the regime. Um, but my dad goes to boarding school and, and then like every German male born around 1921, as he had been, um, Hitler decides to invade. Um, my dad's part of the invasion of the Soviet Union. He advances uh, as a detachment to a, a Luftwaffe squadron. And he's driving a, a Jeep that has photos and maps, reconnaissance photos and target maps through Poland, Ukraine, um, and then right on the Dnieper River, uh, in fact, a lot of the, the postmarks on my dad's letters home have been in the news just the last few weeks with the in Russia's invasion of, of Ukraine. Um, my dad bivouacs in, in Dnieper Petrovsk, this Ukrainian city on the Dnieper River, for a year and a half um, until in, in just this providential moment, he sees a, a notice in the barracks that says that there are places back at the Munich Institute of Technology to study chemistry if people want to apply for a leave. So he somehow gets transferred back to Munich in 43, I think it was late 43, for about five months. And it was to his great fortune because in the space of those five months, things would change enough that when he's reactivated after the leave, he is sent west, which meant that when the war ends, he's captured not by the Russians, which would, of course, turn into the gulag, if not worse, but captured by the Americans. And then on an August day in 1945, the war's over, he shows up at his mother's door uh, with dysentery and emaciated, and but alive. And he spends the next three years uh, basically at, at her side, helping her navigate um, the horrors of the post-war. And by then, his father has founded Pantheon, has become an American citizen, and he arranges great schmoozer and networker that Kurt Wolf was for my dad to come study to graduate work in, in chemistry at Princeton. So at a time when um, German citizens weren't citizens of any state other than the Allied-occupied territories, they didn't have passports. My dad somehow was lucky enough to get a student visa to come and study in the States. He meets my mother a few years later, and the rest is kind of history. But, of course, there, there are all sorts of um, aftershocks and scars. And, you know, my dad did a great job, I think, um, or he certainly saw it as a great job, and as a child I appreciate it, I'm sure, of concealing any trauma that he might have gone through um, because he was so set on kind of blending in with the prevailing attitude, which was one of, of the 50s, you know, looking forward. He had this job in industry after he finished his graduate work in chemistry. He got hired by RCA and then Xerox. He was just part of that whole 50s, 60s, 70s, put your head down, work hard. And my sisters and I were the beneficiaries of that. And I think that probably was setting that aside and, okay, let's look carefully at what the course of my dad's life was what was he dealing with? What were some of the things that manifested themselves in our daily lives growing up that were clearly aftermath of the war? And come to find out, it was mostly food. It, was, it had to do with 
when he had been hungry and how there was always that sense that maybe someday I'll be hungry again. What can I do to hedge against it? Um, and probably the most disturbing thing I ran into in working on the book, I didn't know this at all. Um, I always thought of the Holocaust as being something that happened in camps in the Polish woods. And it turns out in Ukraine was actually the staging ground for this Nazi experiment called the Hunger Plan, where the idea was for as the German forces advanced east, they would live off the land, they would starve the peasantry, they would starve Soviet prisoners they took, they would starve Jews and Slavs, and any surplus would go back to the Reich to keep the citizenry happy. Um, and sure enough, my dad's letters home to his mother in the early stages of the invasion are all about how well he's eating. And the juxtaposition of that um, with the histories that I was reading, like Tim Snyder's Bloodlands about Europe between Hitler and Stalin, which is a book of high relevance to today, what's going on in Ukraine. Um, that was sort of over here on the left-hand side while I'm reading my dad's letters home on the right-hand side. These two tracks are kind of speaking to each other. And then I realized how easy it was for somebody like my dad, who was simply a grunt in the Wehrmacht, to be implicated. Um, you know, there were Wehrmacht soldiers who did much worse things than eat their rations. As best as I could tell, my dad did nothing horrific like that. But does it really matter? He was part of this invading army that had orders to make sure that no food goes into the mouth of the Ukrainian because that food could go into the mouth of a German child. I wondered when I was reading this if you had ever read a book by Tom DeWolf called Inheriting the Trade about the DeWolf slave trade. Does that ring a bell? No. There was a documentary. There was a documentary that was made by another relative of the DeWolf family called Traces of the Trade in 2008 by Katerina Brown. And this was a family, well-to-do family, um, almost all Ivy League educated who finally wanted to confront their family's history in the slave trade because James DeWolf, who, who began all of this, uh, I think was the second wealthiest man in America in his day hundreds of years ago. And the whole family sort of has been trying to hide this past. And I think only about 12 of them wanted to come together to even discuss it of hundreds of ancestors. So I, I just I, I thought yeah. perhaps you might have stumbled upon it and it might have been some kind of impetus for what you were exploring with some of these ties that are just so complex to navigate now. I, this is the first I've heard of the DeWolf story, but I, I, I will say the, the Sackler story has, has resonated with me because um, mm. there's, there's a book uh, by a German writer named Norman Oler who was published in the States as Blitzed was the title, Drugs in the Third Reich. And it turns out that Hitler, or so argues Oler in this book, was uh, an opioid addict. And the opioid of choice was Oikadol, which was manufactured by Merck, my family. Um, so I, I do have to grapple with that in the book, um, discovering that. And then as it happens on my mom's side of the family, um, you go back four or five generations to Louisiana and you have... Um, slaveholders. Um, and I touch on that in the book, too. Largely just try to pivot the narrative um, back around to work we have to do in the States, 
um, coming to terms with slavery and racial justice. And frankly, in that year in Berlin, it seemed as though Germany had gone so farther down that path of grappling, of reckoning, of, of turning their public spaces into places of reflection um, in a way that we're just hopelessly spinning our wheels on here in the state. So um, one of those things where I tried to go out of the that patrilineal narrative um, of just telling the history and sort of saying, okay, what can we learn and how might we apply here what, what the Germans have applied to their civic life? And um, maybe it, it it shouldn't be in the book, but I, as the as the days, weeks, months pass since publication, I'm more and more grateful that that I did grapple, at least try to make some sense of it. But I will definitely make a, a note of the DeWolf story because it it takes some courage, I think, to 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 go back and and open the the pand. It's inevitably a Pandora's box. Um, Absolutely, and take a look at it. Yeah. It was sort of the first time I saw, I mean, this was, the book I think was 2008. It might have been earlier than that. Um, but saw privilege under assault and how uneasy the family was saying, look, we had no involvement directly with any of this. We didn't even benefit. I didn't inherit any money. And it took one of the, I think, the braver members of the family to say, how many of us are legacy students at Ivy League institutions? And immediately more people protested to say, wait a minute, I could read at the age of three. How dare you try to undermine my sense of accomplishment? It was just really interesting. But good for them for having those conversations. I mean, I, I at one point I just started cataloging all my privileges. I mean, it's just to think that my father, who had, who was an armed soldier of the Third Reich and had just three years earlier been taken prisoner and was in an American POW camp is now doing graduate study at Princeton. And then of course, you know, here I, as his son, um, when I apply to Princeton and regarded as a legacy, I mean, it's just the privileges and the, and the the review you quoted from, which was um, from Suchi Sarazwa wrote it in the Boston globe. Um, she points out in that review just how my father and grandfather's stories were very much colored. You know, they, they were immigrant success stories, both of them. You know, regardless of what happened to Kurt at the end of his career, where he re-emigrated, but it, they were very much colored by the fact they were white European males. I mean, it's impossible not to see it through that frame, and. Um, so it, and from means, that's, obviously, from from significant means as well. Significant means that somehow uh, the means survived all this. So even though Kurt was on the run and relocating, you know, one step ahead of the Gestapo, he would somehow sell his book collection. He had all these old first editions and Incunabula, and he, he would find an auction house in Cannes and and. And auction off enough of them so you could get through another few years or buy a villa outside Florence or whatever it was. And then, of course, my dad emigrates, and he still, as a member of the Merck family, is entitled to a piece of that German company that, come to find out, is part of the Nazi war machine. Um, and he sells it, and that money helps send me to college. And, you know, it, it just it goes on. And it, um, the Dole family had their 
session, and I've talked to some of my family members about this too. So it's 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 something that has become foregrounded. If that's not too harsh an expression, right? Um, no, it's it's a. Yeah. I mean, yeah, that that review describing a reckoning. But I, I guess, kind of lastly, I wanted to just touch upon is your involvement in a book like this, all this energy and research and and thoughtfulness, how has it altered and informed your current perspective on where we are in the United States? And now, more broadly speaking, geopolitically with the Ukraine thing, um, I just wonder, how are you feeling right now about things? Well, what I was feeling sort of got, got ignited four days after we landed in Berlin, when Charlottesville happened. And I should say that raised, having been raised by my father who went through these these events, I got a steady drumbeat of, you know, you have no idea how lucky we are in America, that democracy is something you need to fight for, you can't take it for granted, um, all that stuff. So I, I, I was already well gated for that, but, um, I do think from Charlottesville through January 6th through, as I mentioned a moment ago, some of these towns like Venezia and Kharkiv, and it's now called Dnipro, but it was Dnipropetrovsk when my dad was there for a year and a half. Um, these cities in the Ukraine, I mean, there's something about being between these two huge entities, Russia on the one hand, and let's just call it Europe on the other. There's that African proverb, when elephants fight, the grass loses, you know, and, and Ukraine is the grassland and almost literally. And so, yes, I, I'm, my instinct was maybe to put more of our present moment into the book. Um, and I got talked out of a great deal of that. And I think wisely so, because the, the, the smart reader can draw all sorts of conclusions on their own. Um, but yeah, it's, you, you think history has kind of run through a cycle and then, we'll be on to something new, but, but no, we, history will then cycle back upon itself, especially when you have somebody who seems so ensnared in a certain part of history as Putin is right now. Um, but in, in terms of us being here in the States and what we're going through, um, yeah, it's, it's just vigilance, I guess. I mean, when, when you think about Germany, how poorly it did with its first try at democracy in, in the early 20s with Weimar. Um, you might cut the country to some slack because they just come off of years of imperial rule, whereas the French and the Americans that had democracy dating back, you know, decades and decades. But um, now we look at Germany, and I would say Germany is a country that we as Americans would do well to emulate. Um, not just because of their public reckoning that they've done with their, their horrible past, um, but they're just this model of, of sanity and stability. And even here in the last month or so, have shown that they're, they're able to switch course when events dictate and um, becoming more willing to remilitarize when it looks like the, the, the alliance needs to to check Putin's adventurism. So it... I know, I guess the, the great lesson is a little bit of what I heard my father say, which is just vigilance. You know, you have to work for it every day. You can't take it for granted. And um, my dad was um, kind of uh, 
extremely moderate in so many ways. Um, but when you come from that particular part of the world in that period of history, it, it, it will make um, a radical espouser of common sense out of anybody. Do you, do you have any sense, I mean, what's required in terms of, I mean, as you're saying, like when I read Traces of the Trade, just to see the gymnastics of that family try to deal with their own reckoning. Uh, um, but I wonder for you, I mean, I've tried to imagine this with my own great-grandfather of hiding the fact that he was Jewish and hungry, which was, I mean, so savage what was going on with the Holocaust. I know even at the end of the war, after Hitler killed himself, there were a lot of Hungarians who tried to execute as many homosexuals and Romani people and Jews as they could at the Danube just because they knew they wouldn't have a chance to do it later kind of thing, like just terrifying Mm -hmm. stuff. Um, I just wonder where the U.S. is in terms of such divisiveness. I mean, one of the things I find so depressing is one would have thought coronavirus would be a unifying thing. (laughs) That It's just such an objective thing to confront where where the data is empirical, but it's been exactly the opposite. It's been this massive wedge. So I guess I just wonder, do you have any hope for history in some way informing our future that we can learn from and do better in some sense? Yeah, I, I do have hope. I do. I mean, I, you, you sort of have to, um, what's the alternative? Um, in the same way I, I ask myself sometimes, I, I worked on this project. Look what I found out. Am I glad I now know? I said, yes, I'm glad I now know. Um, I think that's somehow linked to the idea that yes, I still have hope, you know, better that we know. If we know, then if, if we have some facts on the table, we can perhaps persuade and win people over. Um, I still believe that that's possible. Um, you know, more and more people are becoming college educated. People who are college educated tend to take worldwide pandemics more seriously. They tend to be um, less politically extreme on either side of the divide. Um, so yes, I, I, I do think a college friend of mine wrote a book called Non-Zero um, in which he argues that um, if you take a really long view of history, uh, Robert Wright is the name of the writer. Um, if you take a really long view of history, um, human beings have entered into more and more non-zero sum relationships through trade and interaction and common interests, whatever it might be. And, and he extracts enormous amounts of hope from that. Um, at the same time, he thinks what's happened between Russia and, and Europe and, and the U.S. recently is a result of a lack of our ability to put ourselves in the shoes of others, that there are things that the West could have done um, acknowledging Russia's not unfounded fears of NATO expansionism that might have nipped this in the bud. Whether that indeed is the case, who knows, but it's a counterfactual argument. But this idea of if you take the long, long view, which unfortunately means that you and I will have passed from the scene um, when some in the vanishing future uh, state of grace is reached, that that there is reason for hope. Um, so, you know, I've got two kids. I look at them and I can only I can only conclude that anyway. Mm. Last thing I wanted to touch upon was just uh, your feelings about Sports Illustrated, 
of, of starting there, what that was like, and what it's been like to see it get quite literally smaller and smaller and smaller <laughs> over the years until it uh, its purchase on uh, American sports readership and, and just where sports journalism has gone is just so so night and day from, from when you began in that industry. Yeah, it's it's been um it it's been a very uh tough experience. It's full of full of mixed emotions and the people um that I work with there and many of them still work or it's really largely a website now, um were terrific and, and some of them are still doing just amazing work. Uh just last week there was a wonderful piece about charter flights in the WNBA. It was Terrifically reported, and um, it, it may seem like um, it's just a, a little pimple on the arse of the sports world, a story like that. But you know, there's still things that SI can contribute to the conversation. And um, but I think what I'm I rue the most is that uh, the way SI has kind of left the stage where the agenda was set very much every week by what was in the magazine and. Um, people would renew subscriptions simply because there would be four stories from Gary Smith that they would get in a year, and um, each one in its own right was was worthy of the cost of a year subscription. Um, and now, you know, we're down to what sixteen, seventeen issues a year. And um, so here I am. Yeah, I use the I use the pronoun we. So um, that probably gives you a little window into how proprietary I still feel about the place, but. Um, you know, again, I, as somebody who majored in history, just worked on this project in history, the history of the place, and thanks to the archive on the web, you know, there's there's still some great stuff that SI has contributed. And, gee, it seems like, this, judged by the streaming services, um, people are consuming sports nostalgically as much as anything else. And, um, you know, some of the great, great work that SI has done over, over the decades is still there for the partaking of. Um, but it's not without, you know, that better, that bittersweet feeling about what it once was. And, you know, people who are a lot smarter than me tried to find ways to reinvent the model and deliver that SI experience, which is a visual one as well as, as words on a page um, through new platforms. And, and, you know, for a while it looked like it was going to be videos and, you know, the pivot to video became a laugh line. So now I just, you know, I hope some of these long feature stories that captured personalities and moments and um, the great trends and issues in, in a field that's even more important, I think, a more essential part of American culture now. Um, I just hope that stuff lives, you know, immortally. Yeah, it's just it's shocking to me to imagine anybody coming out of journalism school at Columbia or something, the landscape that they're looking at in terms of hoping to earn a living, it clearly now, uh, you would never get into it unless you came for money because there's no way in hell that anybody's going to make a living from doing long form, not even just sports, but it's just so challenging now compared to uh, when I was a kid hearing about Mark Cram and his incredible expense accounts and that sort of thing. It's such a different world, isn't it? 
Well, and you put your finger on it because it's not just the the time that the writer needs to you know, to do the interviews and wrestle with the words on the page, and they, you have to earn a living to eat during that time. But but just you know, you have you have to go places. You have to get on planes and and actually leave shoe leather on the pavement. And who's willing to underwrite all of that today? The way. You know, how lucky were we who were at the magazine during its heyday from when it broke into the black probably in the early to mid-60s, um, you know, right up through maybe the mid-2000s? Um, I just can't believe how much time, space, and resources were on offer for us to do the work we wanted to do. And for many of the stories I worked on, it was you had the idea, you called up an editor and gave them a couple sentences and the response would be, when can we have it? You didn't even have to twist an arm. It was just, you know, you were in this Vulcan mind melt space where you and your editor both knew what, what a good story was and then you were off empowered to do it to the best of your ability. And I, I just ache for the people who have the talent to do that. But as you say, you know, just where's the, where's the model? Where are the resources? How do they eat? What's next for you? Last question. What what's what do you follow this book up with? That is such a good question. I wrestle with it um regularly. It's a little bit of an anticlimax, whatever it would be after this, because it's just so emotionally exhausting and papers was. Um and it there have been uh, there's been a German edition and a Spanish edition, so there's been kind of these second waves of it, um, dealing with the public. I'm not complaining about um, at all, but um, but when the deck's clear, I I wonder. I've never done anything in uh, except just dipping the toe in the water in other media. So, and I find um, serial podcasting or audibles sometimes to be the best way to tell a story, or sometimes um, you know visually. Um, I did get to work with the, the Hoop Dreams guys, Steve James and Peter Gilbert on a, a feature back in the mid nineties that was a lot of fun and I thought worked on a lot of levels and um there may be something in that realm, but I, I need to give it a little more of a mull. Um but in terms of taking on another book, um haven't quite found it yet. It it's it needs to be something that calls to you every day, you know, lures you to your station to work on it. And um uh, anyway, I mean, I'm sure you know this too, that it, those, those things don't come down the pike every day. No. Well, and especially after a book like this, that is just so rich with so much dimension. Yeah. I, it, it's hard for anything not to seem kind of watered down by comparison. I'm sure. Well, and of course, because it's a family story, I, I didn't have to twist arms or go into negotiations to get access people's private um private diaries or letters or anything and um yeah and and that that's you know the standard of richness now that I used to that I that I would want to have access to if I were telling someone else's story has become pretty high as a result of this undertaking but um but that might be why another medium is the way to go um it does seem that people are consuming stories on, on audio platforms now. It just sort of can meet us where we are in a way, you know, whether we're in a car 
on a walk or drifting off to sleep, whatever it might be. Um, so I, I'm curious about it. Leave it at that. <laughs> yeah. Thanks so much for your time today, Alex. I really appreciate it and I really enjoyed the book. Brent, thanks so much. Thanks for your interest in it. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Tourist Information. The producers are George Alarcon Swaby and myself, Bryn Jonathan Butler. Please subscribe or rate the podcast. It helps us to keep bringing them out. Thanks again for listening.